Section 3 of The Golden Bough, Volume 1. Part 1 The Magic Art of the Evolution of Kings, Volume 1. By James Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 3 Sympathetic Magic. Part 1 1. The Principles of Magic The two principles of sympathetic magic are the law of similarity and the law of contact or contagion. If we analyse the principles of thought on which magic is based, they will probably be found to resolve themselves into two. First, that like produces like, or that an effect resembles its cause. And second, that things which have once been in contact with each other continue to act on each other at a distance after the physical contact has been severed. The former principle may be called the law of similarity, the latter the law of contact or contagion. From the first of these principles, namely the law of similarity, the magician infers that he can produce any effect he desires merely by imitating it. From the second he infers that whatever he does to a material object will affect equally the person with whom the object was once in contact, whether it formed part of his body or not. Charms based on the law of similarity may be called homeopathic or imitative magic. Charms based on the law of contact or contagion may be called contagious magic. To denote the first of these branches of magic, the term homeopathic is perhaps preferable, or the alternative term, imitative or mimetic, suggests that does not imply a conscious agent who imitates, thereby limiting the scope of magic too narrowly. For the same principles which the magician applies in the practice of his art are implicitly believed by him to regulate the operations of inanimate nature. In other words, he tacitly assumes that the laws of similarity and contact are of universal application and are not limited to human actions. In short, magic is a spurious system of natural law as well as a fallacious guide of conduct. It is a false science as well as an abortive art. Regarded as a system of natural law, that is, as a statement of the rules which determine the sequence of events throughout the world, it may be called theoretical magic regarded as a set of precepts which human beings observe in order to compass their ends. It may be called practical magic. At the same time, it is said to be borne in mind that the primitive magician knows magic only on its practical side. He never analyzes the mental processes on which his practice is based, never reflects on the abstract principles involved in his actions. With him, as with the vast majority of men, logic is implicit, not explicit. He reasons, just as he digests his food, in complete ignorance of the intellectual and physiological processes which are essential to the one operation and to the other. In short, to him magic is always an art, never a science. The very idea of science is lacking in his undeveloped mind. It is for the philosophic student to trace the train of thought which underlies the magician's practice. To draw out the few simple threads of which the tangled skein is composed, to disengage the abstract principles from their concrete applications, in short, to discern the spurious science behind the bastard art. The two principles are misapplications of the association of ideas. If my analysis of the magician's logic is correct, as two great principles turn out to be merely two different misapplications of the association of ideas, homeopathic magic is found on the association of ideas by similarity. Contagious magic is founded on the association of ideas by contiguity. Homeopathic magic commits the mistake of assuming that things which resemble each other 
are the same contagious magic commits the mistake of assuming that things which have once been in contact with each other are always in contact but in practice the two branches are often combined or to be more exact while homeopathic or imitative magic may be practiced by itself contagious magic will generally be found to involve an application of the homeopathic or imitative principle thus generally stated the two things may be a little difficult to grasp but they will readily become intelligible when they are illustrated by particular examples both trains of thought are in fact extremely simple and elementary it could hardly be otherwise since they are familiar in the concrete though certainly not in the abstract to the crude intelligence not only of the savage but of ignorant and dull-witted people everywhere both branches of magic the homeopathic and the contagious may conveniently be comprehended under the general name of sympathetic magic since both assume that things act on each other at a distance through a secret sympathy the impulse being transmitted from one to the other by means of what we may conceive as a kind of invisible ether not unlike that which is postulated by modern science for a precisely similar purpose namely to explain how things can physically affect each other through a space which appears to be empty it may be convenient to tabulate as follows the branches of magic according to the laws of thought which underlie them a small table is displayed on the page with three branches sympathetic magic law of symmetry homeopathic magic law of similarity contagious magic law of contact i will now illustrate these two great branches of sympathetic magic by examples beginning with homeopathic magic part two homeopathic or imitative magic magical images among the american indians perhaps the most familiar application of the principle that like produces like is the attempt which has been made by many peoples in many ages to injure or destroy an enemy by injuring or destroying an image of him in the belief that just as the image suffers so does a man and that when it perishes he must die a few instances out of many may be given to prove at once the wide diffusion of the practice over the world and its remarkable persistence throughout the ages for thousands of years ago it was known to the sorcerers of ancient india babylon and egypt as well as of greece and rome and at this day it is still resorted to by cunning and malignant savages in australia africa and scotland thus the north american indians we are told believe that by drawing the figure of a person in sand ashes or clay or by considering any object as his body and then pricking it with a sharp stick or doing it any other injury they inflict a corresponding injury on the person represented for example when the ojibwe indian desires to work evil on any one he makes a little wooden image of his enemy and runs a needle into its head or heart or he shoots an arrow into it believing that wherever the needle pierces or the arrow strikes the image his foe will the same instant be seized with a sharp pain in the corresponding part of his body but if he intends to kill the person outright he burns or buries the puppet uttering certain magic words as he does so so when a cora indian of mexico wishes to kill a man he makes a figure of him out of burnt clay strips of cloth and so forth and then muttering incantations runs thorns through the head or stomach of the figure to make his victim suffer correspondingly sometimes the Kora indian makes a more beneficial use of this sort of homeopathic magic when he wishes to multiply his flocks or herds he models a figure of the animal he wants in wax or clay or carves it from tuff and deposits it in a cave of the mountains for these indians believe that the mountains are masters of all riches including cattle and sheep 
for every cow deer dog or hen he wants the indian has to sacrifice a corresponding image of the creature this may help us to understand the meaning of the figures of cattle deer horses and pigs which were dedicated to diana and nemi there may have been offerings of farmers or huntsmen who hoped therefore to multiply the cattle or the game similarly when the totas of southern india desire to obtain more buffaloes they offer silver images of these animals in the temples the peruvian indians moulded images of fat mixed with grain to imitate the persons whom they disliked or feared and then burned the effigy on the road where the intended victim was to pass this they call burning his soul but they drew a delicate distinction between the kinds of materials to be used in the manufacture of these images according as the victim was an indian or a waracocha that is a spaniard to kill an indian they employed maize and the fat of a llama to kill a spaniard they used wheat and the fat of a pig because viracochas did not eat llamas and preferred wheat to maize magical images among the malays a malay charm of the same sort is as follows take parings of nails hair eyebrows spittle and so forth for your intended victim enough to represent every part of his person and then make them up into his likeness with wax from deserted bees comb scorch the figure slowly by holding it over a lamp every night for seven nights and say it is not wax that i am scorching it is the liver heart and spleen of so and so that i scorch after the seventh time burn the figure and your victim will die this charm obviously combines the principles of homeopathic and contagious magic since the image which is made in the likeness of an enemy contains things which once were in contact with him namely his nails hair and spittle another form of the malay charm which resembles the ojibwe practice still more closely is to make a corpse of wax from an empty bee's comb and of the length of a footstep then pierce the eye of the image and your enemy is blind pierce his stomach and he is sick pierce the head and his head aches pierce the breast and his breast will suffer if you would kill him outright transfix the image from the head downwards enshroud it as you would a corpse pray over it as you were praying over the dead then bury it in the middle of a path where your victim will be sure to step over it in order that his blood may not be on your head you should say it is not i who am burying him it is gabriel who is burying him thus the guilt of the murder will be laid on the shoulders of the archangel gabriel who is a great deal better able to bear it than you are in eastern java an enemy may be killed by means of a likeness of him drawn on a piece of paper which is then incensed or buried in the ground among the minangkabuers of sumatra a man who is tormented by the passion of hate or by unrequited love will call in the help of a wizard in order to cause the object of his hate or love to suffer from a dangerous ulcer known as tingam after giving the wizard the necessary instructions as to the name bodily form dwelling and family of the person in question he makes a puppet which is supposed to resemble his intended victim and repairs with it to a wood where he hangs the image on a tree that stands quite by itself muttering a spell he then drives an instrument through the navel out of the puppet into the tree till the sap of the tree oozes through the hole thus made the instrument which inflicts the wound bears the same name tingam as the ulcer which is to be raised on the body of the victim and the oozing sap is believed to be his or her life spirit soon afterwards the person against whom the charm is directed begins to suffer from an ulcer which grows worse and worse till he dies unless a friend can procure a piece of the wood of the tree to which the image is attached magical images in torres straits and borneo the sorcerers of morbeg or jervis island in torres straits keep an assortment of effigies in stock ready to be operated on at the requirement of a customer 
Some of the figures were of stone. These were employed when short work was to be made of a man or woman. Others were wooden. These gave the unhappy victim a little more rope, only, however, to terminate his prolonged sufferings by a painful death. The mode of operation in the latter case was to put poison, by means of a magical implement, into a wooden image, to which the name of the intended victim had been given. Next day the person, aimed at wood, feel the chilly, then waste away and die, unless the same wizard, who had wrought the charm, would consent to undo it. If the sorcerer pulled off an arm or leg of the image, the human victim felt pain in the corresponding limb of his body, but if the sorcerer restored the severed arm or leg to the figure, the man recovered. Another mode of compassing a man's death in Torres Straits was to prick a wax effigy of him or her with the spine of a stingray. So when the man whose name had been given to the waxen image next went a-fishing on the reef, a stingray would sting him in the exact part of his body where the waxen image had been pierced. Or the sorcerer might hang the effigy on the bough of a tree, and as it swayed to and fro in the wind, the person represented by it would fall sick. However, he would get well again if a friend of his could induce the magician to steady the figure by sticking it firmly in the sandy bottom of the sea. When the Lerons of Borneo wish to be revenged on an enemy, they make a wooden image of him and leave it in the jungle. As it decays, he dies. More elaborate is the proceeding adopted by the Kenyes of Borneo in similar circumstances. The operator retires with the image to a quiet spot on the river bank, and when a hawk appears in a certain part of the sky, he kills a fowl, smears his blood on the image, and puts a bit of fat in the mouth of the figure, saying, put fat in his mouth. By that he means, may his head be cut off, hung up in an enemy's house, and fed with fat in the usual way. He then strikes at the breast of the image with a small wooden spear, throws it into a pool of water, reddened with red earth, and afterwards takes it out and buries it in the ground. Magical Images in Japan and China If an Aino of Japan desires to compass the destruction of an enemy, he will make a likeness of him out of mugwort or the gulda rose and bury it in the hole upside down under the trunk of a rotten tree, with a prayer to a demon to carry off the man's soul or to make his body rot away with the tree. Sometimes an Aino woman will attempt to get rid of her husband in this fashion by wrapping up his headdress in the shape of a corpse and burying it deep in the ground, while she breathes a prayer that her husband may rot and die with the headdress. The Japanese themselves are familiar with similar modes of enchantment. In one of their ancient books, we read of a rebellious minister who made figures of the heir to the throne with intent, no doubt, to do him grievous bodily harm thereby, and sometimes a woman who had been deserted by her lover will make a straw effigy of the faithless gallant and nail it to a sacred tree, adjoining the gods to spare the tree and to visit the sacrilege on the traitor. At a shrine in Compure, this sort of pine tree studded with nails which had been thus driven in for the purpose of doing people to death. The Chinese are perfectly aware that you can harm a man by maltreating or cursing an image of him, especially if you have taken care to write on it his name and horoscope. This mode of venting spite on an enemy is said to be commonly practiced in China. In Amoy, such images, roughly made of bamboo splinters and paper, are called substitutes of persons and may be bought very cheap for a cash or so a piece at any shop which sells paper articles for the use of the dead or the gods. For the frugal Chinese are in the habit of palming off paper imitations of all kinds of valuables on the simple-minded ghosts and gods who take them in all good faith for the genuine articles. As usual, the victim suffers a hurt corresponding to the hurt done to his image. Thus, if you ran a nail or a needle into the eyes of the puppet, your man will go more or less blind. 
If you stick a pin in its stomach, it will double up with colic. A stab in the heart of the effigy may kill him outright, and in general the more you prick it, and the louder you speak the spell, the more certain is the effect. To make assurance doubly sure, it is desirable to impregnate the effigy, so to say, with the personal influence of the man by passing it clandestinely beforehand over him or hiding it unbeknown to him in his clothes or under his bed. If you do that, he is quite sure to die sooner or later. Naturally, these nefarious practices are no new thing in the Chinese Empire. There is a passage in the Chinese Book of Rewards and Penalties which illustrates their prevalence in days gone by. There, under the rubric, to hide an effigy of a man for the purpose of giving him the nightmare, we read as follows. This means hiding the carved wood effigy of a man somewhere with the intent to give him the nightmare. Kong Tang Cho, having died suddenly, some time after he had succeeded to the post of treasurer, he appeared in a dream to the governor of his district and said to him, I have been the victim of an odious crime, and I am come, my lord, to pray you to avenge me. My time to die had not yet come, but my servants gave me the nightmare, and I was choked in my sleep. If you will send secretly some dauntless soldiers, not one of the varlets will escape you. Under the seventh tile of the roof of my house will be found my image carved of wood fetch it and punish the criminals next day the governor of the district had all the servants arrested and sure enough after some search they found under the said tile the figure of a man in wood a foot high and bristling all over with nails bit by bit the wood changed in the flesh and uttered inarticulate cries when it was struck the governor of the district immediately reported to the prefect of the departure who condemned several of the servants to suffer the extreme rigour of the law Magical Images in Australia When some of the Aborigines of Victoria desired to destroy an enemy, they would occasionally retire to a lonely spot, and draw on the ground a rude likeness of the victim, would sit around it, and devote him to destruction with cabalistic ceremonies. So dreaded was this incantation that men and women who learned that it had been directed against them have been known to pine away and die of fright. On the Bloomfield River in Queensland, the natives think they can doom a man by making a rough wooden effigy of him and burying it in the ground or by painting his likeness on a bull roarer and they believe that persons whose portraits are carved on a tree at cape bedford will waste away when the wife of a central australian native has eloped from him and he cannot recover her the disconsolate husband repairs with some sympathizing friends to a secluded spot where a man skilled in magic draws on the ground a rough fire supposed to represent the woman lying on her back beside the figure is laid a piece of green bark which stands for her spirit or soul, and at it the men throw miniature spirits which have been made for the purpose and charmed by singing over them. This bark and effigy of the woman's spirit with a little spear sticking in it is then thrown as far as possible in the direction which she is supposed to have taken. During the whole of the operation, the men chant in a low voice, the burden of their song being an invitation to the magic influence to go out and enter her body and dry up all her fat. Sooner or later, often a good deal later, her fat does dry up, she dies, and her spirit is seen in the sky in the form of a shooting star. Magical Images in Burma and Africa In Burma, a rejected lover sometimes resorts to a sorcerer and engages him to make a small image of the scornful fair one containing a piece of her clothes or of something which she has been in the habit of wearing. Certain charms or medicines also enter into the composition of the doll, which is then hung up or thrown into the water. As a consequence, the girl is supposed to go mad. In this last example, as in the first of the Malay charms noticed above, 
homeopathic or imitative magic is blent with contagious magic in the strict sense of the word since the likeness of the victim contains something which has been in contact with her person Amatabel, who wishes to avenge herself on an enemy makes a clay figure of him and pierces it with a needle next time the man thus represented happens to engage in a fight he will be speared just as his effigy was stabbed the ovambo of southwestern africa believe that some people have the power of bewitching an absent person by gazing into a vessel full of water till his image appears to them in the water and they spit at the image and curse the man and that seals his fate magical images in ancient india the ancient books of the hindus testify to the use of similar enchantments among their remote ancestors to destroy his foe a man would fashion a figure of him in clay and transfix it with an arrow which had been barbed with a thorn and winged with an owl's feathers or he would mould the figure of wax and melt it in a fire sometimes effigies of the soldiers horses elephants and chariots of a hostile army were modelled in dough and then pulled in pieces again to destroy an enemy the magician would kill a red-headed lizard with the words i am killing so-and-so smear it with blood wrap it in a black cloth and having pronounced an incantation burn it another way was to grind up mustard into meal with which a figure was made of the person who was to be overcome or destroyed then having muttered certain spells to give efficiency to the rite, the, the enchanter chopped up the image anointed it with melted butter curds or some such thing and finally burnt it in a sacred pot the so-called sanguinary chapter of the kalika puran there occurs the following passage on the autumnal maha navani or when the month is in a lunar mission skanda or bishaka let a figure be made either of barley meal or earth representing the person with whom the sacrificer is at variance and the head of the figure be struck off after the usual texts have been used the following text is to be used in invoking the axe on the occasion effuse effuse blood be terrific be terrific seize destroy for the love of ambika the head of his enemy magical images in modern india in modern india the practices described in these old books are still carried on with mere variations of detail the magician compounds the fatal image of earth taken from sixty-four filthy places and mixed up with clippings of hair parings of nails bits of leather and so on upon the breast of the image he writes the name of his enemy then he pierces it through and through with an awl or maims it in various ways hoping thus to maim or kill the object of his vengeance among the nampotirius of malabar a figure representing the enemy to be destroyed is drawn on a small sheet of metal gold by preference on which some mystic diagrams are also inscribed the sorcerer then declares that the bodily injury or death of the person shall take place at a certain time after that he wraps up a little sheet in another sheet or leaf of metal gold if possible and buries it in a place where the victim is expected to pass sometimes instead of a small sheet of metal he buries a live frog or lizard enclosed in a coconut shell after sticking nails into its eyes and stomach at the same moment that the animal dies the person expires also among the Mohammedans of North India, the proceeding is as follows. A doll is made of earth, taken from a grave or from a place where bodies are cremated, and some sentences of the Koran are read backwards over twenty-one small wooden pegs. These pegs, the operator next strikes into various parts of the body of the image, which is afterwards shrouded like a corpse, 
carried to a graveyard and buried in the name of the enemy whom it is intended to injure. The man, it is believed, will die without fail after the ceremony. A slightly different form of the charm is observed by the Bam Margi, a very degraded sect of Hindus in the northwest provinces. To kill an enemy, they make an image of flower or earth. A stick raises into the breast, navel, and throat, while pegs are thrust into the eyes, hands, and feet. As if it were not enough, they next construct an image of Bareva or Durga, holding a three-pronged fork in her hand. This they place so close to the effigy of the person to whom mischief is meant that the fork penetrates its breast. To injure a person, a Singhali sorcerer will procure a lock of his intended victim's hair, a paring of his nails, or a thread of his garment. Then he fashions an image of him and thrusts nails made of five metals into the joints. All these he buries where the unfortunate man is likely to pass. No sooner has he done so than the victim falls ill with swelling or stiffness of joints, or burning sensations in the body, or disfigurements of the mouth, legs, and arms. Magical Images Among the Arabs of North Africa Similar enchantments are wrought by the Muslim peoples of North Africa. Thus, an Arabic treatise on magic directs that if you wish to deprive a man of the use of his limbs, you should make a waxen image of him, and engrave his name and his mother's name on it with a knife or which the handle must be made of the same wax. Then smite the limb of the image, which answers to the particular limb of the man which you desire to disable. At the same moment, the limb of flesh and blood will be paralyzed. The following is another extract of the same treatise. To injure the eyes of an enemy, take a taper, fashion it, into the likeness of him whom you would harm. Write on it the seven signs, along with the name of your enemy, and the name of his mother, and gouge out the two eyes of the figure with two points. Then put it in a pot with quicklime, on which you must throw a little charib el haman and bury the hole near the fire. The fire will make your victim to shriek, and will hurt his eyes, so that he will see nothing, and that the pain will cause him to utter cries of distress. But do not prolong the operation more than seven days, for... He would die, and you would have to answer for it, day of the last judgment. If you wish to heal him, withdraw the vigour and throw it into water. He will recover with God's leave. Magical Images in Ancient Egypt and Babylon Nowhere, perhaps, were the magic arts more carefully cultivated. Nowhere did they enjoy greater esteem or exercise, a deeper influence on the natural life, than in the land of the pharaohs. Little wonder, therefore, that the practice of enchantment by means of images was familiar to the wizards of Egypt. A drop of a man's blood, some clippings of his hair, or parings of his nails, a rag of the garment which he had worn, sufficed to give a sorcerer complete power over him. These relics of his person, the magician kneaded into a lump of wax, which he moulded into the likeness and dressed after the fashion of his intended victim, who was then at the mercy of his tormentor. If the image was exposed to the fire, the person whom it represented straight away fell into a burning fever. If it was stabbed with a knife, he felt the pain of the wound. Thus, for instance, a certain superintendent of the king's cattle was once prosecuted in an Egyptian court of law for having made figures of men and women in wax, thereby causing paralysis of their limbs and other grievous bodily harm. He had somehow obtained a book of magic which contained the spells and directions how to act in reciting them. Armed with this powerful instrument, the rogue had shut himself up in a secret chamber, and then proceeded to cast spells over the people of his town. In ancient Babylonia, also, it was a common practice to make an image of clay, pitch, honey, fat, or other soft material in the likeness of an enemy, and to injure or kill him by burning, burying, or otherwise ill-treating it. 
Thus in a hymn to the fire god Nusku, we read, Those who have made images of me reproducing my features, who have taken away my breath, torn my hairs, who have rent my clothes, have hindered my feet from treading the dust, may the fire god, the strong one, break their charm. Magical Images in Babylon and Egypt for the Discomfiture of Demons both in Babylon and in Egypt, this ancient tool of superstition, so baneful in the hands of the mischievous and malignant, was also pressed into the service of religion, and turned to glorious account for the confusion and overthrow of demons. In Babylonian incantation we meet with a long list of evil spirits whose effigies were burnt by the magician in the hope that, as their images melted in the fire, so that the fiends themselves might whirl away and disappear. Every night when the sun-god Ra sank down to his home in the glowing west, he was assailed by hosts of demons under the leadership of the arch-fiend Apepai. All night long he fought them, and sometimes by day the powers of darkness set up clouds even into the blue Egyptian sky to obscure his light and weaken his power. To aid the sun-god in this daily struggle, a ceremony was daily performed in his temple at Thebes. A figure of his foe, Apepai, represented as a crocodile with a hideous face or a serpent with many coils was made of wax and on it the demon's name was written in green ink wrapped in a papyrus case on which another likeness of apopi had been drawn in green ink the figure was then tied up with black hair spat upon hacked with a stone knife and cast onto the ground there the priest trod on it with his left foot again and again and then burned it in a fire made of a certain plant or grass when apopi himself had thus been effectually of waxen effigies of each of his principal demons and of their fathers mothers and children were made and burnt in the same way the service accompanied by the recitation of certain prescribed spells was repeated not merely morning noon and night but whenever a storm was raging or heavy rain had set in or black clouds were stealing across the sky to hide the sun's bright disk the fiends of darkness clouds and rain felt the injuries inflicted on their images as if they had been done to themselves they passed away at least for a time, and the beneficent sun-god shone out triumphant once more. Magical Images in Scotland From the azure sky, the stately fanes and the solemn ritual of ancient Egypt, we have to travel far in space and time to the misty mountains and the humble cottages of the Scottish highlands of today. But at our journey's end, we shall find our ignorant countrymen seeking to attain the same end by the same means, and unhappily, with the same malignity as the Egyptian of old. To kill a person whom he hates, a modern Highlander will still make a rude clay image of him called a corp clure or corp crude clay body, stick it full of pins, nails, and broken bits of glass, and then place it in a running stream with its head to the current. As every pin is thrust into the figure, an incantation is uttered, and the person represented feels a pain in the corresponding parts of his body. If the intention is to make him die a lingering death, the operator is careful to stick no pins into the region of the heart, whereas he thrusts them into the region deliberately if he desires to rid himself of his enemy at once. And as the clay puppet crumbles away into the running water, so the victim's body is believed to waste away and turn to clay. In Islay, the spell spoken over the corp cray when it is ready to receive the pins is as follows. From behind you are like a ram, with an old fleece, and as the pins are being thrust in, a long incantation is pronounced, beginning, as you waste away, may she waste away, as this wounds you, may it wound her. 
Sometimes, we are told, the effigy is set before a blazing fire on a door which has been taken off its hinges. There it is toasted and turned to make the human victim writhe in agony. The corp cray is reported to have been employed in late years in the countries of Inverness, Ross and Sutherland. A specimen from Inverness Shire may be seen in the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford. It is remarkable, however, that in the Highlands this form of magic has no power over man who has lost any of his members. For example, though Ross Shire witches make a clay figure of Donald of the Ear, they could not destroy him because he had not lost an ear in battle. A similar form of witchcraft known as burying the sheaf seems still to linger in Ireland among the dwellers of the Bog of Ardee. The person who works the charm goes first to a chapel and says certain prayers with his back to the altar, and then he takes a sheaf of wheat, which he fastens into the likeness of a human body, sticking pins in the joints of the stems, and according to one account, shaping a heart of plated straw. This sheaf he buries in the devil's name near the house of his enemy, who will, it is supposed, gradually pine away as the sheaf decays, dying when it finally decomposes. If the enchanter desires his foe to perish speedily, he buries the sheath in wet ground, where it will soon mould away. But if, on the other hand, his wish that his victim should linger in pain, he chooses a dry spot, where decomposition will be slow. However, in Scotland, as in Babylon and Egypt, the destruction of an image has also been employed for the discomfiture of fiends. When Shetland fishermen wish to disenchant their boat, they row it out to sea before sunrise and as the day is dawning, they burn a waxen figure in the boat, while the skipper exclaims, Go hence, Satan. Magical Images to Procure Offspring in America and Africa If homeopathic or imitative magic, working by means of images, has commonly been practiced for the spiteful purpose of putting obnoxious people out of the world, it has also, though far more rarely, been employed with the benevolent intention of helping others into it. In other words, it has been used to facilitate childbirth and to procure offspring for barren women. Thus, among the Eskimos of Bering Strait, a barren woman desirous of having a son will consult a shaman, who commonly makes or causes her husband to make a small doll-like image over which she performs certain sacred rites, and the woman is directed to sleep with it under her pillow. Amongst the many ceremonies which the Thompson Indian girl of British Columbia had formerly to perform at puberty was the following. She had to run four times in the morning, carrying two small stones which had been obtained from underneath the water. These were put in her bosom. As she ran, they slipped down between her body and her clothes and fell to the ground. While she ran, she prayed to the dawn that when she should be with the child, she might be delivered as easily as she had been delivered of these stones. Similarly, among the Haida Indians of the Queen Charlotte Islands, a pregnant woman would let round stones, eels, chips, or other small objects slip down over her abdomen for the sake of facilitating her delivery. Among the Nishiman Indians of California, when a woman is childless, her female friends sometimes make out of grass a rude image of a baby and tie it in a small basket after the Indian fashion. Some day, when the woman is from home, they lay this grass baby in her hut. On finding it, she holds it to her breast, pretends to nurse it, and sings it lullabies. This is done as a charm to make her conceive. The Huicol Indians in Mexico believe that a certain mother who is a goddess of conception and childbirth and lives in a cave near Santa Catarina 
a woman desirous of offspring deposits in this cave a doll made of a cotton cloth to represent the baby in which her heart is set after a while she goes back to the cave puts the doll under her girdle and soon afterwards is supposed to be pregnant with a like intent indian women of peru used to wrap up stones like babies and leave them at the foot of a large stone which they revered for this purpose among the Makatises, a kafra tribe in south africa a traveller observed a woman carefully tending a doll made out of cord adorned with necklaces of glass beads and heavily weighted with iron ore on inquiry he learned that she had been directed by the medicine man to do this as a means of obtaining a child among the basutos childless wives made rude effigies of clay and give them the name of some tutelar deity they treat these dolls as if they were real children and beseech the divinity to whom they have been dedicated them to grant them the power of conception in anno a district of west africa women may often be seen carrying wooden dolls strapped like babies on their backs as a cure for sterility in japan when a marriage is unfruitful the old women of the neighbourhood come to the house and go through a pretence of delivering the wife of a child the infant is represented by a doll the Maoris had a household god whose image was in the form of an infant the image was very carefully made generally life-size and adorned with the family jewels bearing women nursed it and dressed it in the most endearing terms in order to become mothers magical images to procure offspring in the eastern archipelago among the batas of sumatra a barren woman who would become a mother will make a wooden image of a child and hold it in her lap believing that this will lead to the fulfilment of her wish in the Baybar archipelago when a woman desires to have a child she invites a man who is himself the father of a large family to pray on her behalf to Upelaro, the spirit of the sun a doll is made of red cotton which the woman clasps in her hands as if she would suckle it then the father of many children takes a fowl and holds it by the legs to the woman's head saying o Apelero, make use of the fowl let fall let descend a child i beseech you i entreat you let a child fall and descend into my hands and on my lap then he asks the woman has the child come and she answers yes it is sucking already after that the man holds the fowl on her husband's head and mumbles some formal words lastly the bird is killed and laid together with some battle on the domestic place of sacrifice when the ceremony is over word goes about in the village that the woman has been brought to bed and her friends come and congratulate her here the pretense that a child has been born is a purely magical rite designed to secure by means of imitational mimicry that a child really shall be born but an attempt is made to add to the efficiency of the rite by means of prayer and sacrifice to put it otherwise magic is here blent with and reinforced by religion in sabai one of the islands in torres straits a similar custom of purely magical character is observed without any religious alloy here when a woman is pregnant all the other women assemble the husband's sister makes an image of a male child and places it before the pregnant woman afterwards the image is nursed until the birth of the child in order to ensure that the baby shall be a boy to secure male offspring a woman will also press to her abdomen a fruit resembling the male organ of generation which she then passes to another woman who has borne none but boys this it is clear is imitative magic in a slightly different form in the seventh month of a woman's pregnancy common people in java observe a ceremony which is plainly designed to facilitate the real birth by mimicking it husband and wife repair to a well 
or to the bank of a neighbouring river. The upper part of the woman's body is bare, but young banana leaves are fastened under her arms. A small opening or other fold been left in the leaves in front. Through this opening or fold in the leaves on his wife's body, the husband lets fall from above a weaver shuttle. An old woman receives this shuttle as it falls, takes it up in her arms and dandles it as if it were a baby, saying, Oh, what a dear little child! Oh, what a beautiful little child! Then the husband lets an egg slip through the fold, and when it lies on the ground, as an emblem of the afterbirth, he takes his sword and cuts through the banana leaf at the place of the fold, obviously as if he were severing the navel string. Persons of high rank in Java observe the ceremony after a fashion in which the real meaning of the rite is somewhat obscured. The pregnant woman is clothed in a long robe, which her husband, kneeling before her, severs with the stroke of his sword from button to top. Then he throws his sword on the ground and runs away as fast as he can. According to another account, the woman is wrapped around with white thread. Her husband cuts it with his sword, throws away an oblong white cord, dashes a fowl's egg to the ground, rolls along a young coconut on which the figures of a man and woman have been painted, and so departs in haste. Among some of the Dayaks of Borneo, when a woman is in her labour, a wizard is called in, who essays to facilitate the delivery of, in a rational manner, by manipulating the body of the sufferer. Meantime, another wizard outside the room exerts himself to attain the same end by means which we should regard as wholly irrational. He, in fact, pretends to be the expectant mother. A large stone attached to his stomach by a cloth wrapped around his body represents the child in the womb, and following the directions shouted to him by his colleague on the real scene of operations, he moves this make-believe baby about in his body in exact imitation of the movements of the real baby till the infant is born. Simulation of birth and adoption and after supposed death The same principle of make-believe, so due to children, has led other people to employ a simulation of birth as a form of adoption, even as a mode of restoring a supposed dead person to life. If you pretend to give birth to a boy, or even to a great bearded man, who has not a drop of your blood in his veins, then the eyes of primitive law and philosophy, the boy or man is really your son to all intents and purposes. Thus Diodorus tells us that when Zeus persuaded his jealous wife Hera to adopt Hercules, the goddess got into bed, and clasping the burly hero to her bosom, pushed him through her robes, and let him fall to the ground in imitation of a real birth. And the historian adds that in his own day the same mode of adopting children was practiced by the barbarians. At the present time it is said to be still in use in Bulgaria and among the Bosnian Turks. A woman will take a boy whom she intends to adopt and push or pull him through her clothes. If not afterwards, he is regarded as her very son and inherits the whole property of his adoptive parents. Among the Berowans of Sarawak, when a woman desires to adopt a grown-up man or woman, a great many people assemble and have a feast. The adopting mother, seated in public on a raised and covered seat, allows the adopted person to crawl from behind between her legs. As soon as he appears in front, he is stroked with the sweet-scented blossoms of the areca palm and tied to the woman. Then the adopting mother and the adopted son or daughter, thus bound together, waddle to the end of the house and back again in front of all the spectators. The tie established between the two by this graphic imitation of childbirth is very strict. An offence committed against an adopted child is reckoned more heinous than one committed against a real child. In Central Africa, the Bahima practiced adoption. The male relatives always take charge of a brother's children. When a man dies, his brother takes any children of the deceased and places them, one by one, in his wife's lap. Then he binds around her waist a thong used for tying the legs of restive cows during milking, just as is done after childbirth. 
the children are then brought up with his own family in ancient greece any man who has been supposed erroneously to be dead and for whom in his absence funeral rites had been performed was treated as dead to society till he had gone through the form of being born again he was passed through a woman's lap then washed dressed in swaddling clothes and put out to nurse not until this ceremony had been punctually performed might he mix freely with living folk in ancient india under similar circumstances a supposed dead man had to pass the first night after his return in a tub filled with a mixture of fat and water there he sat with doubled up fists and without uttering a syllable like a child in the womb while over him were performed all the sacraments that were wont to be celebrated over a pregnant woman next morning he got out of the tub and went through once more all the other sacraments he had formerly partaken of from his youth up in particular he married a wife or espoused his old one over again with due solemnity simulation of birth among the akikuyu amongst the akikuyu of the british east africa every member of the tribe whether male or female has to go through a pretense of being born again the age at which the ceremony is performed varies with the ability of the father to provide the goat or sheep which is required for the due observance of the rite but it seems that the new birth generally takes place when a child is about ten years old or younger if a child's father or mother is dead a man or woman acts as proxy on the occasion and in such a case woman is therefore regarded by the child as its own mother a goat or sheep is killed in the afternoon and the stomach and intestines are reserved the ceremony takes place at evening in a hut none but women are allowed to be present a circular piece of the goat skin or sheepskin is passed over one shoulder and under the other arm of the child who is to be born again and the animal's stomach is similarly passed over the child's other shoulder and under its other arm the mother or the woman who acts as mother sits on a hide on the floor with the child between her knees the sheep's or goat's gut is passed round her and brought in front of the child she groans as if in labour another woman cuts the gut as if it were the navel string and the child imitates the cry of a newborn infant until a lad has thus been born again in mimicry he may not assist at the disposal of his father's body after death nor help to carry him out into the wilds to breathe his last formerly the ceremony of the new birth was combined with the ceremony of circumcision but the two are now kept separate in origin we may suppose that this curious pretense of being born again regularly formed part of the initiatory rites through which every kikuyu lad and every kikuyu girl had to pass before he or she was recognized as a full-grown member of the tribe for in many parts of the world a simulation of death and resurrection has been enacted by candidates on such occasions as well as on a mission to the membership of certain secret societies the intention of the mock birth or mock resurrection is not clear but we may conjecture that it is designed on the principles of homeopathic or imitative magic either to impart to the candidate the powers of a ghost or to enable him to be reborn again into the world whenever he shall have died in good earnest magical images to procure love magical images have often been employed for the amiable purpose of winning love thus to shoot an arrow into the heart of the clay image was an ancient hindu mode of securing a woman's affection only the bowstring must be of hemp the shaft of the arrow must be of black alabud, wood its plume an owl's feather and its barb a thorn no doubt the wound inflicted on the heart of the clay image was supposed to make a corresponding impression on the woman's heart among the chippeway indians there used to be a few young men or women who had not little images of the persons whose love they wished to win 
they pricked the huts of the images and inserted magical powders into the punctures while they addressed the effigies by the names of the persons whom they represented bidding them requite their affection ancient witches and wizards melted wax in the fire in order to make the hearts of their sweethearts to melt of love and as the wound of love may be inflicted by an image so by an image it may be healed how that can be done is told by hind in a poem based on the experience of one of his own schoolfellows it is called the pilgrimage to kevlar and describes how sick people offer waxen models of their ailing members to the virgin mary at kevlar in order that she may heal them of their infirmities in the poem a lover wasting away for love of sorrow at the death of his sweetheart offers to the virgin the waxen model of her heart with a prayer that she would heal his heartache such customs still commonly observed in some parts of catholic europe are interesting because they show how in later times magic comes to be incorporated with religion the moulding of wax images of ailing members is in its origin purely magical the prayer to the virgin or to a saint is purely religious the combination of the two is a crude yet pathetic attempt to turn both magic and religion to account for the benefit of the sufferer magical images to maintain domestic harmony the natives of new caledonia make use of effigies to maintain or restore harmony between husband and wife two spindle-shaped bundles one representing the man and the other the woman are tied firmly together to symbolize and ensure the enmity of the couple they are made up of various plants together with some threads from the woman's girdle and a piece of the man's apron a bone needle forms the axis of each the talisman is meant to render the union of the spouses indissoluble and is carefully treasured by them both if nevertheless a domestic jar should unfortunately take place the husband repairs to the family burying ground with the precious bagot there he lights a fire with a wood of a particular kind fumigates the talisman sprinkles it with water from a prescribed source waves it round his head and stirring the needle with the bundle which represents himself he says i change the heart of this woman that she may love me if the wife still remains obdurate he ties a sugar cane to the bundle and presents it to her through a third person if she eats the sugar cane she feels her love for her husband revive on the other side she has the right to operate in like manner on the bundle which represents herself always provided that she does not go into the burying ground which is strictly forbidden to women homeopathic magic in medicine another benefit use of homeopathic magic is to heal or prevent sickness in ancient greece when a man died of dropsy his children were made to sit with their feet in water until the body was burned this was supposed to prevent the disease from attacking them similarly on the principle of water to water among the natives of the hills near rajamahal in india the body of a person who has died of dropsy is thrown into a river they think that if the corpse were buried the disorder would return and carry off other people homeopathic treatment of jaundice the ancient hindus performed an elaborate ceremony based on homeopathic magic for the cure of jaundice its main drift was to banish the yellow colour to yellow creatures and yellow things such as the sun to which it properly belongs and to procure for the patient a healthy red colour from a living vigorous source namely a red bull with the attention a priest recited the following spell up to the sun shall go thy heartache and thy jaundice in the colour of the red bull do we envelope thee we envelope thee in red tints unto long life may this person go unscathed and be free of yellow colour the cows whose divinity is rohini they who moreover are themselves red 
Rokine, in their every form and every strength, we do envelope thee. Into the parrots, into the thrush, do we put thy jaundice, and furthermore, into the yellow wagtail, do we put thy jaundice. While he uttered these words, the priest, in order to infuse the rosy hue of health into the sallow patient, gave him water to sip, which was mixed with the hair of a red bull. He poured water over the animal's back, and made the sick man drink it. He seated him on the skin of a red bull, and tied a piece of the skin to him. And in order to improve his colour by thoroughly eradicating the yellow taint, he proceeded thus. He first daubed him from head to foot in a yellow porridge made of turmeric or curcuma, a yellow plant. Set him on a bed, tied three yellow birds to wit a parrot, a thrush, and a yellow wagtail by means of a yellow string to the foot of the bed. Then, pouring water over the patient, he washed off the yellow porridge, and with it no doubt the jaundice from him to the birds. After that, by way of giving a final bloom to his complexion, he took some hairs of a red bull, wrapped them in gold leaf, and glued them to the patient's skin. The agents held that if a person suffering from jaundice looked sharply at a stone curlew, and the bird looked steadily at him, he was cured of the disease. Such is the nature, says Plutarch, and such the temperament of the creature, that it draws out and receives a malady which issues, like a stream, through the eyesight. So well recognised among bird fanciers was this valuable property of the stone curlew, that when they had one of these birds for sale, they kept it carefully covered, lest the jaundiced person should look at it, and be cured for nothing. The virtue of the bird lay not in its colour, but in its large golden eye, which, if it do not pass for a tuft of yellow lichen, is the first thing that strikes the searcher as a bird cowers to escape observation, on the sandy flintstone surface of the ground which it loves to haunt, and with which its drab plumage blends so well that only a practised eye can easily detect it. Thus the yellow eye of the bird drew out the yellow jaundice. Pliny tells of another, or perhaps the same bird, to which the Greeks gave their name of jaundice, because if a jaundiced man saw it, the disease left him and slew the bird. He mentions also a stone which is supposed to cure jaundice because its hue resembled that of a jaundiced skin. In modern Greece, jaundice goes by the name of the golden disease, and very naturally it can be healed by gold. To effect a perfect cure, all that you have to do is this. Take a piece of gold, best of all an English sovereign, since English gold is the purest, and put it in a measure of wine. Expose the wine with the gold to the stars for three nights, then drink three glasses of it daily till it is used up. By that time, the jaundice will be quite washed out of your system. The cure is, in the strictest sense of the word, a sovereign one. A wind cure for jaundice. Like the modern Greek one, it's to drink a glass of water in which a gold coin has been left overnight. A remedy based on the principle of contraries is to look steadily at pitch or other black substances. In South Russia, a Jewish remedy for jaundice is to wear golden bracelets. Here the great homeopathic principle is clearly the same as in the preceding cases, though its application is different. Homeopathic treatment of St. Anthony's fire. In Germany, yellow turnips, gold coins, gold rings, saffron and other yellow things are still esteemed remedies for jaundice, just as a stick of red sealing wax carried on the person cures a red eruption popularly known as St. Anthony's fire, or the bloodstone, with its blood-red spots, allays bleeding. Another popular remedy in Germany for the red St. Anthony's fire, and also for bleeding, is supplied by the common crossbills. In this bird, after the first molt, the difference between the sexes is shown by the hens inclining to yellowish-green, while the cocks becoming diversified by orange-yellow and red, their plumage finally deepening into a rich crimson-red, varied in places by a flame-colour. 
the smallest reflection may convince us that these gorgeous hues must be endowed with very valuable medical properties accordingly in some parts of bavaria saxony and bohemia people keep crossbills in cages in order that the red bills may draw the red synanthes fire and the inflammation of fever to themselves and so relieve the human patient homeopathic virtue of crossbills often in a peasant's cottage you may see the red bird in its cage hanging beside a sick bed and drawing to itself the hectic flush from the cheeks of the hot and restless patient who lies tossing under the blankets after the dried body of a crossbill has only to be placed on a wound to stop the bleeding at once it is not the colour only of the feathers which produce its sanctuary effect the peculiar shape of the bill which gives the bird its english and german name is a contributory cause for the horny sheaths of the bill cross each other obliquely and this formation undoubtedly enables a bird to draw diseases to itself more readily than a beak of the common shape could possibly do curious observers have even remarked that when the upper bill crosses the lower to the right the bird will attract the diseases of men whereas if the upper bill crosses the lower to the left it will attract the diseases of women but i cannot vouch for the accuracy of this particular observation however that may be certain it is that no fire will break out in a house where a crossbill is kept in a cage neither will lightning strike the dwelling and this immunity can only be ascribed to the protective colouring of the bird the red hue of its plumage serving to ward off the red lightning and to nip a red conflagration in the bud however the poor bird seldom lives to old age nor could this reasonably be expected of a creature which has to endure so much vicarious suffering it generally falls a victim to one rather of the maladies of which it has relieved our ailing humanity the causes which have given the crossbill its remarkable colour and the peculiar shape of its bill have escaped many naturalists but they are familiar to children in germany the truth is that when jesus christ hung on the cross a flight of crossbills fluttered around him and tugged with their bills at the nails in his hands and feet to draw them out till their feathers which were grey before were all bedabbled with blood and their beaks which had been straight were twisted awry so red have been their feathers and twisted their beaks from that day to this another cure prescribed in germany for st anthony's fire is to rub the patient with ashes from a house that has been burned down for it is easy to see that as the fire died out in the house so st anthony's fire will die out in that man the shrew mouse and the shrew ash a curious application of homeopathic magic to the cure of disease is founded on the old english superstition that if a shrew mouse runs over a beast be it a horse cow or sheep the animal suffers cruelly and may lose the use of its limb against this accident the farmer used to keep a shrew ash at hand as a remedy a shrew ash was prepared thus a deep hole was bored into the tree and a shrew mouse was thrust in alive and plugged in probably with some incantations which had been forgotten homeopathic prescriptions to make the hair grow an asian indian cure for a scanty crop of hair was to pour a solution of certain plants over the head of the patient this has to be done by a doctor who is dressed in black and had eaten black food and the ceremony must be performed in the early morning while the stars were fading in the sky and before the black cows had risen cawing from their nests the exact virtue of these plants has escaped our knowledge but we can highly doubt that they were dark and hairy while the black clothes of the doctor his black food and the swarthy hue of the 
crows unquestionably combined to produce a crop of black hair on the patient's head a more disagreeable means of attracting the same end is adopted by some of the tribes of central australia to promote the growth of a boy's hair a man with flowing locks bites the youth's scalp as hard as he can being urged thereto by his friends who sit round watching him at his task while the sufferer howls aloud in pain clearly on the principle of capillary attraction if i may say so he thus imparts of his own mature abundance to the scarcity of his youthful friend various homeopathic remedies one of the great merits of homeopathic magic is that it enables the cure to be performed on the person of the doctor instead of that of his victim who is thus relieved of all trouble and inconvenience while he sees his medical man writhe in anguish before him homeopathic cures for example the peasants of Perche in france labour under the impression that a prolonged fit of vomiting is brought about by the patient's stomach becoming unhooked as they call it and so falling down accordingly a practitioner is called in to restore the organ to its proper place after hearing the symptoms he at once throws himself into the most horrible contortions for the purpose of unhooking his own stomach having succeeded in the effort he next hooks it up again in another series of contortions and grimaces while the patient experiences a corresponding relief fee five francs in like manner a diac medicine man who has been fetched in a case of illness will lie down and pretend to be dead he is accordingly treated like a corpse is bound up in mats taken out of the house and deposited on the ground after about an hour or other medicine men lose the pretended dead man and bring him to life and as he recovers the sick person is supposed to recover too a cure for a tumour based on the principle of homeopathic magic is prescribed by marcellus of bordeaux court physician in theodosius i in his curious work on medicine it is as follows take a root of vivane cut it across and hang one end of it round the patient's neck and the other in the smoke of the fire as a vivienne dries up in the smoke so the tumour will also dry up and disappear if the patient should afterwards prove ungrateful to the good physician the man of skill can avenge himself very easily by throwing the vivane in water for as the root absorbs the moisture once more the tumour will return the same sapient writer recommends you if you are troubled with pimples to watch for a falling star and then instantly while the star is still shooting from the sky to wipe the pimples with a cloth or anything that comes to hand just as the star falls from the sky so the pimples will fall from your body and you must be very careful not to wipe them with your bare hand or the pimples will be transferred to it End of section 3「Golden Bough Volume 1 The Magic Art and the Evolution of Kings Volume 1 by James Fraser This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey Section 4 Chapter 3 Sympathetic Magic Subchapter 2 Homeopathic or Imitative Magic Part 2 sympathetic magic to ensure food supply further homeopathic and in general sympathetic magic plays a great part in the measures taken by the rude hunter or fisherman to secure an abundant supply of food 
on the principle that like produces like many things are done by him and his friends in deliberate imitation of the result which he seeks to attain and on the other hand many things are scrupulously avoided because they bear some more or less fanciful resemblance to others which would really be disastrous sympathetic use of sympathetic magic in central australia nowhere is the theory of sympathetic magic more systematically carried into practice for the maintenance of the food supply than in the barren regions of central australia here the tribes are divided into a number of totem clans each of which is charged with the duty of propagating and multiplying their totem for the good of the community by means of magical ceremonies and incantations Intichuma, or magical ceremonies for the increase of the totemic animals and plants in central australia the great majority of the totems are edible animals and plants and the general results supposed to be accomplished by these magical totemic ceremonies or intichuma as the arunta call them is that of supplying the tribe of food and other necessaries often the rites consist of an imitation of the effect which the people desire to produce in other words their magic is of the homeopathic or imitative sort witchetty grub ceremony thus among the arunta the men of the witchetty grub totem perform a series of elaborate ceremonies for multiplying the grub which the other members of the tribe use as food one of the ceremonies is a pantomime representing the fully developed insect in an act of emerging from the chrysalis a long narrow structure of branches is set up to imitate the chrysalis case of the grub in this structure a number of men who have the grub for their totem sit and sing of the creature in its various stages then they shuffle out of it in a squatting posture and as they do they sing of the insect emerging from the chrysalis this is supposed to multiply the numbers of the grubs emu ceremony again in order to multiply emus which are an important article of food the men of the emu totem in the arunta tribe proceed as follows they clear a small spot of the ground and opening veins in their arms they let the blood stream out until the surface of the ground for a space of about three square yards is soaked with it when the blood is dried and caked it forms a hard and fairly impermeable surface on which they paint the sacred design of the emu totem especially the parts of the bird which they like best to eat namely the fat and the eggs round this painting the men sit and sing afterwards performers wearing headdresses to represent the long neck and small head of the emu mimic the appearance of the bird as it stands aimlessly peering about in all directions hakea flower ceremony again men of the hakea flower totem in the arunta tribe perform a ceremony to make the hakea tree burst into blossom the scene in the ceremony is a little hollow by the side of which grows the ancient hakea tree in the middle of the hollow is a small worn block of stone supposed to represent a mass of hakea flowers before the ceremony begins an old man of the totem carefully sweeps the ground clean then stokes the stone all over with his hands after that the men sit round the stone and chant invitations to the tree to flower much and to the blossoms to be filled with honey finally at the request of the old leader one of the young men opens a vein in his arm and lets the blood flow freely over the stone while the rest continue to sing the flow of blood is supposed to represent the preparation of the favorite drink of the natives which is made by steeping the hakea flower in water as soon as the stone is covered with blood the ceremony is complete kangaroo ceremony again the men of the kangaroo totem in the Arunta tribe perform ceremonies for the multiplication of kangaroos at a certain rocky ledge which in the opinion of the natives is full of the spirits of kangaroos ready to go forth and inhabit kangaroo bodies 
a little higher up on the hillside are two blocks of stone which represent a male and female kangaroo respectively at the ceremony these two blocks are rubbed with a stone by two men and the rocky ledge below is decorated with alternate vertical stripes of red and white to indicate the red fur and white bones of the kangaroo after that a number of young men sit on the ledge open veins in their arms and allow the blood to spurtle over the edge of the rock on which they are seated this pouring out of the blood of the kangaroo men on the rock is thought to drive out the spirits of the kangaroo in all directions and so to increase the number of the animals while it is taking place the other men sit below watching the performers and singing songs refer to the expected increase of kangaroos grass seed ceremony in the Katish tribe when the headman of the grass seed totem wishes to make the grass grow he takes two sacred sticks or stones charinga of the well-known borer pattern smears them with red ochre and decorates them with lines and dots of down to represent grass seed he then rubs the sticks or stones together so that the down flies off in all directions the down is supposed to carry with it some virtue from the sacred stick or stone whereby the grass seed is made to grow for days afterwards the headman walks about by himself in the bush singing the grass seed and carrying one of the sacred bull roars Chiringa, with him at night he hides the implement in the bush and returns to camp where he may have no intercourse with his wife but during all this time he is believed to be so full of magic power derived from the bull roarer that if he had intercourse with her the grass seed would not grow properly and his body would swell up when he tasted of it when the seed begins to grow he still goes on singing to make it grow more but when it is fully grown he brings back the sacred implement to his camp hidden in bark and having gathered a store of the seed he leaves it with the men of the other half of the tribe saying you eat the grass seed in plenty it is very good and grows in my country mana ceremony a somewhat similar ceremony is performed by men of the mana totem in the arunta tribe for the increase of their totem this manna is a product of the mulga tree acacia anura and resembles a better known sugar manna of gum trees when the men of the totem wish to multiply the manna they resort to a great boulder of grey rock curiously streaked with black and white seams which is thought to represent a mass of manna deposited there long ago by a man of the totem the same significance is attributed to other smaller stones which rest on the top of the boulder the hetman of the totem begins the ceremony by digging up a sacred bullroarer charinga which is buried in the earth at the foot of the boulder it is supposed to represent a lump of manna and to have lain there ever since the remote el Karinga, or dream time the farthest part of which these savages have any conception next the headman climbs to the top of the boulder and rubs it with the bullroarer and after that he takes the smaller stones and with them rubs the same spot on the boulder meantime the other men sitting round about chant loudly an invitation to the dust produced by the rubbing of the stones to go out and generate a plentiful supply of manna on the mulga trees finally the twigs of the mulga of the leader sweeps away the dust which is gathered on the surface of the stone his intention is to cause the dust to settle on the mulga trees and so produce manna euro ceremony again in a rocky gorge of the murchison range there are numbers of little heaps of rounded water-worn stones carefully arranged on beds of leaves and hidden away under piles of rougher quartzite blocks in the opinion of the waramanga tribe these rounded stones represent euros that is a species of kangaroo according to their size they stand for young or old male or female euros 
any old man of the Eurototem who happens to pass a spot may take the stones out, smear them with red ochre, and rub them well. This is supposed to cause the spirits of Euros to pass out from the stones and to be born as animals, thus increasing the food supply. Cockatoo Ceremony Again in the Waramunga tribe, Messrs. Spencer and Gillen saw and heard a ceremony which is believed to multiply white cockatoos to a wonderful extent. From ten o'clock one evening until after sunrise next morning, the headman of the white cockatoo totem held in his hand a rude effigy of the cockatoo and imitated the harsh cry of the bird with exasperating monotony all night long. When his voice failed him, his son took up the call and relieved the old man until such time as his father was rest enough to begin again. Homeopathic or imitative character of these rites. In this last ceremony, the homeopathic or imitative character of the rite is particularly plain. The shape of the bird which is to be multiplied is mimicked by an effigy. Its cry is imitated by the human voice. In others of the ceremonies just described, the homeopathic principle works by means of stones, which resemble in shape the edible animals or plants that the natives desire to increase. We shall see presently that the Melanesians similarly attribute fertilizing virtues to stones of certain shapes. Use of human blood in these ceremonies. Meantime, it deserves to be noticed that in some of these Australian rites for the multiplication of the totemic animals, the blood of the men of the totem plays an important part. Similarly, in a ceremony performed by men of the Diary tribe for the multiplication of carpet snakes and iguanas, the performers wound themselves and the blood that drips from their wounds is poured on a sandhill in which the mythical ancestor is believed to be buried, and from which carpet snakes and iguanas are confidently expected to swarm forth. Again, when the headman of the fish totem in the Wonkongaru tribe desires to make fish plentiful, he paints himself all over with red ochre, and taking little pointed bones, goes into a pool. There he pierces his scrotum and the skin around the navel with the bones, and sits down the water. The blood from the wounds, as it mingles with the water, is supposed to give rise to fish. In all these cases, clearly, a fertilizing virtue is described to human blood. The description is interesting, and may possibly go some way to explain the widely spread custom of voluntary wounds and mutilations in religious or magical rites. It may therefore be worth, even at the cost of a digression, to ensure a little more closely into the custom as it practiced by the rude savages of Australia blood poured into graves in the first place then the dairy customer pouring blood over the supposed remains of the ancestor in his sandhill closely resembles the custom observed by some of the australian aborigines at the graves of their relatives thus among the tribes on the river darling several men used to stand by the open grave and cut each other's heads with a boomerang then hold their bleeding heads over the grave so that the blood dripped on the corpse at the bottom of it if the deceased was highly esteemed the bleeding was repeated after some earth had been thrown on the corpse. Among the Aranta, it is customary for the women and kingsfolk to cut themselves at the grave so that blood flows upon it. Again, at the Vase River in Western Australia, before the body was lowered into the grave, the natives used to gash their thighs, and at the flowing of the blood they all said, I have bought blood, and they stamped the foot forcibly on the ground, sprinkling the blood around them, then wiping the wounds with a wisp of leaves, they threw it, all bloody, on the dead man. After that, they let the body down into the grave. Blood given to the sick and aged. Further, it is a common practice with the Central Australians to give human blood to the sick and aged for the purpose of strengthening them. 
and in order that the blood may have this effect it need not always be drunk by the infirm person it is enough to sprinkle it on his body for example a young man will often open a vein in his arm and let the blood trickle over the body of an older man in order to strengthen his aged friend and sometimes the old man will drink a little of the blood so in illness the blood is sometimes applied outwardly as well as inwardly the patient both drinking it and having it rubbed over his body sometimes apparently he only drinks it the blood is drawn from a man or woman who is related to the sufferer either by blood or marriage and the notion always is to convey to the sick person some of the strength of the blood giver in the wimbeo tribe if a man had nearly killed his wife in a paroxysm of rage the woman was laid on the ground and the husband's arms being tightly bound above the elbows the medicine man opens his veins in them and allow the blood to flow on the prostrate body of the victim till the man grew faint the intention of thus bleeding the man all over the woman was apparently to restore her to life by means of the blood drawn from her assailant blood used by an avenging party again before an avenging party starts to take the life of a distant enemy all the men stand up open their veins and their genital organs with sharp flints or pointed sticks and allow the blood to spurt all over each other's thighs the ceremony is supposed to strengthen the men mutually and also to knit them so closely together that treachery henceforth becomes impossible sometimes for the same purpose blood is drawn from the arm and drunk by the men of the avenging party and if one of them refuses thus to pledge himself the others will force his mouth open and pour the blood into it after that even he wishes to play the traitor and to give the doomed man warning he cannot do so he is bound by a physical necessity to side with the avengers whose blood he has swallowed blood of circumcision and supposition uses made of it further it is worth while to notice some uses made of human blood in connection with the ceremonies of circumcision and supposition which all lads of the central australian tribes have to undergo before they are recognised as full-grown men for example the blood drawn from them at these operations is caught in a hollow shield and taken to certain kinsmen or kinswomen who drink it or have it smeared on their breasts and foreheads the motive of this practice is not mentioned but on the analogy of the preceding customs we may conjecture that it is to strengthen the relatives who partake of the blood this interpretation is confirmed by analogos used in queensland of the blood drawn from a woman at the operation which in the female sex corresponds to subincision in the male for that blood mixed with another ingredient is kept and drunk as a medicine by any sick person who may be in the camp at the time moreover it is corroborated by a similar use of the foreskin which has been removed by circumcision for among the southern arunta this piece of skin is given to the younger brother of the circumcised lad and he swallows it in the belief that it will make him grow strong and tall in the tribe at fowler's bay who practice both circumcision and subincision the severed foreskin is swallowed by the operator perhaps in order to strengthen the lad sympathetically in some tribes in northwest australia it is the lad himself who swallows his own foreskin mixed with kangaroo flesh while in other tribes of the same region the severed portion is taken by the relations and deposited under the bark of a large tree the possible significance of this latter treatment of the foreskin will appear presently among the Kolkudoons of Cloningley in northern Queensland, the foreskin is strung on twine made of human hair, and is then tied round the mother's neck to keep off the devil. In the Warramunga tribe, the old men draw blood from their own sub-incised urethras in presence of the lads, 
who a few days before have undergone the operation of subincision. The object of this custom, we are told, is to promote the healing of the young men's wounds and to strengthen them generally. It does not appear that the blood of the old men is drunk by or smeared upon the youths. Seemingly, it is supposed to benefit them sympathetically without direct contact. Anodynes based on the principle of homeopathic magic. A similar action of blood at a distance may partially explain a very singular custom observed by the Arunta women at the moment when a lad has been sub-incised. The operation is performed at a distance from, but within hearing of the women's camp. When the boy is seized in order to be operated on, the men of the party raise a loud shout of Pierrur. At that sound, the women immediately assemble in their camp, and the boy's mother cuts gashes across the stomach and shoulders of the boy's sisters, her own elder sisters, and old women who furnish the boy with a sacred fire at circumcision, and all the women whose daughters he would be allowed to marry, and while she cuts, she imitates a sound made by the men who are sub-incising her son. These cuts generally leave behind them a definite series of scars. They have a name of their own, Urpuna, and are often resembled by definite lines on the bull roarers. What the exact meaning of this extraordinary ceremony may be, I cannot say, but perhaps one of its supposed effects may be to relieve the boy's pain by transferring it to his womankind. In like manner, when the Waramunga men are fighting each other with blazing torches, the women burn themselves with light twigs in the belief that by doing so they prevent the men from inflicting serious injuries to each other. The theory further receives some support from certain practices formerly observed by the natives inhabiting the coast of New South Wales. Before lads had their noses bored, the medicine men threw themselves into contortions on the ground, and after pretending to suffer great pain, were delivered of bones, which were to be used at the ceremony of nose-boring. The lads were told that the more the medicine men suffered, the less pain they themselves would feel. Again, among the same natives, when a woman was in labour, a female friend would tie one end to the cord round the sufferer's neck and rub her own gums with the other end till they bled, possibly in order to draw away the pain from the mother to herself. For a similar reason, perhaps, in Samoa, the blood was being drawn from a virgin bride. Her friends, young and old, beat their heads with stones till they bled. Fertilizing virtue attributed to blood of circumcision and subincision. Lastly, in some tribes, the blood shed at the circumcision and subincision of lads is collected in paper bark and buried in the bank of a pool where water lilies grow. This is supposed to promote the growth of the lilies. Needless to say, this rude attempt at horticulture is not prompted by a single delight in contemplating these beautiful bright blue flowers which bloom in the Australian wilderness, digging the surface of pools by countless thousands. The savages feed on the stems and roots of the lilies. That is why they desire to cultivate them. Fertilizing virtue attributed to foreskin. And the last practice of fertilizing virtue is clearly attributed to the blood of circumcision and subincision. The Anula tribe, who among others observe the custom, obviously ascribe the same virtue to the severed foreskin, for they bury it also by the side of the pool. The Waramunga entertain the same opinion of this part of the person, for they place a foreskin in a hole made by a witchetty grub in a tree, believing that it will cause a plentiful supply of these edible grubs. Among the Unmatura, the custom is somewhat different, but taken in connection with their traditions, it is even more significant. The boy puts his severed foreskin on a shield, covers it up with a broad spear-thrower, then carries it in the darkness of night. 
lest any one should see what he is doing, to a hollow tree in which he deposits it. He tells no one where he has hidden it, except a man who stands to him in the relation of father, sister, son. Nowadays there is no special relation between the boy and the tree, but formerly the case seems to have been different. For according to tradition, the early mythical ancestors of the tribe placed their foreskins in their nanja trees, that is, in their local totem trees, the trees from which their spirits came forth at birth, and to which they would return after death. Belief of the Central Australian Tribes in the Reincarnation of the Dead If it seems highly probable, such a custom as that recorded by the tradition never prevailed, its intention could hardly be any other than that of securing the future birth and reincarnation of the owner of the foreskin where he should have died and his spirit returned to its abode in the tree. For among all these central tribes, the belief is firmly rooted that the human soul undergoes an endless series of reincarnations, the living men and women of one generation being nothing but the spirits of their ancestors come to life again, and destined to be themselves reborn in the persons of their descendants. During the interval between two incantations, the souls live in their nanja spots or local totem centres, which are always natural objects such as trees or rocks. Each totem clan has a number of such totem centres scattered over the country. There are the souls of the dead men and women of the totem, but of no other, congregate during their disembodied state, and thence they issue and are born again in human form where a favourable opportunity presents itself. It might well be thought that a man's new birth would be facilitated if, in his lifetime, he could lay upon a stock of vital energy for the use of his disembodied spirit after death. That he did, apparently by detaching a portion of himself, namely the foreskin, and deposited it in the nanja tree, or rock, or whatever it might be. Circumcision perhaps intended to ensure a reincarnation. Is it possible that in this belief and this practice we have the long lost key to the meaning of circumcision? In other words, can it be that circumcision was originally intended to ensure the rebirth at some future time of the circumcised man by disposing of the severed portion of his body in such a way as to provide him with a stock of energy on which his disembodied spirit could draw when the critical moment of reincarnation came round? The conjecture is confirmed by the observation that among the Akikyu of British East India, the ceremony of circumcision used to be regularly combined with the graphic pretense of rebirth enacted by the novice. If this should prove to be intended, the clue to the meaning of circumcision, it would be natural to look for an explanation of subincision along the same lines. Subincision possibly also designed to secure rebirth. Now we have seen that the blood of subincision is used both to strengthen relatives and to make water lilies grow. Hence we may conjecture that the strengthening and fertilizing virtue of the blood was applied, like the foreskin of circumcision, to lay up a store of energy in the nanja spot against the time when the man's feeble ghost would need it. The intention of both ceremonies would thus be to ensure the future reincarnation of the individual by quickening the little totem centre, the home of his disembodied spirit, with a vital portion of himself. That portion, whether the foreskin or the blood, was in a manner seed sown to grow up and provide his immortal spirit with a new body when his old body should have mouldered in this dust. Knocking out of teeth in Australia perhaps practised for the same purpose. Perhaps the same theory may serve to explain another initiatory rite practised by some of the Australian Aborigines, namely, knocking out of teeth. This is the principal ceremony of initiation amongst the tribes of eastern and southern Australia, and it is often practised, though not as an initiatory rite, by the central tribes 
with whom the essential rites of initiation are circumcision and subincision. On the hypothesis here suggested, we should expect to find the tooth regarded as a vital part of the man which was sacrificed to ensure another life for him after death. The durability of the teeth, compared to the corruptible nature of the greater part of the body, might be a sufficient reason with a savage philosopher for choosing this portion of the corporeal frame on which to pin his hope of immortality. The evidence at our disposal certainly does not suffice to establish this explanation of the right. There are some facts which seem to point in this direction. In the first place, the extracted tooth is supposed to remain in sympathetic connection with the man from whom it has been removed, and if proper care is not taken of it, he may fall ill. With some Victorian tribes, the practice was for the mother of the lad to choose a young gum tree and to insert her son's teeth in the bark at the fork of two of the topmost boughs. Even afterwards, the tree was held in a sense sacred. It was made known only to certain persons of the tribe, and the youth himself was never allowed to learn where his teeth had been deposited. When he died, the tree was killed by fire. Thus, in a fashion, the tree might be said to be bound up with the life of the man whose teeth it contained, since when he died, it was destroyed. Further, among some of the central tribes, the extracted tooth is thrown away as far as possible in the direction of the spot where the man's mother is supposed to have had her camp in the far-off legendary time which is known as the Alcaringa. May not this be done to secure the rebirth of the man's spirit in that place? In the Gnanji tribe, the extracted tooth is buried by the man's or woman's mother beside a pool for the purpose of stopping the rain and increasing the number of water lilies that grow in the pool. Extraction of teeth associated with the rain. Thus the same fertilizing virtue is ascribed to the tooth which is attributed to the foreskin severed at circumcision and to the blood drawn at subincision. Why the drawing of teeth should be supposed to stop rain I cannot guess. Curiously enough, among the central tribes generally, the extraction of teeth has a special association with rain and water. Thus among the Arunta, it is practiced chiefly by the members of the rain or water totem and it is nearly, if not quite, obligatory on all the men and women of that totem, whereas it is merely optional with the members of the other clans. Further, the ceremony is always performed among the Arunta immediately after the magical ceremony for the making of rain. In the Waramunga tribe, the knocking out of the teeth generally takes place towards the end of the wet season, when the water holes are full and the natives do not wish any more rain to fall. Moreover, it is always performed on the banks of a water hole. The persons to be operated on entering the pool fill their mouths with water, spit it out in all directions, and splash the water over themselves, taking care to wet thoroughly the crown of the head. Immediately afterwards, the tooth is knocked out. The chingili also knock out teeth towards the close of the wet season, when they think they have had enough of rain. The extracted tooth is thrown into the water hole, in the belief that it will drive rain and clouds away. I merely note, without attempting to account for, this association between the extraction of teeth and the stopping of rain. Extraction of tooth used to determine a man's country in totem. The natives of the Cape York Peninsula in Queensland use the extraction of the tooth to determine both the man's totem and the country to which he belongs. While the tooth has been knocked out, they mention the various districts owned or frequented by the lad's mother, her father, or other of her relatives. The one which happens to be mentioned at the moment when the tooth breaks away is a country to which the lad belongs in the future, that is, the country where he will have the right to hunt and to gather roots and fruits. 
Further, the bloody spittle which he ejects after the extraction of the tooth is examined by the old men, who trace some likeness between it and a natural object, such as an animal, a plant, or a stone. Henceforth, that object will be the young man's ari or totem. Some light is thrown on this ceremony by a parallel custom which the natives of the Pennyfather River in Queensland observe at the birth of the child. They believe that every person's spirit undergoes a series of reincarnations, and that during the interval between two successive reincarnations, the spirit stays in one or other of the haunts of Angia, the being who causes conception in women, by putting mud babies into their wombs. Belief in reincarnation among the natives of the Pennyfather River in Queensland. Hence, in order to determine where the new baby spirit resided, since it was last in the flesh, they mention Angia's haunts one after the other, while the grandmother is cutting the child's navel string, and the place which happens to be mentioned when the navel string breaks is a spot where the spirit lodged since its last incarnation, that is, the country to which the child belongs. There he will have the right of hunting when he grows up. Hence, according to the home from which the spirit came to dwell among men, a child may be known as a baby obtained from a tree, a rock, or a pool of fresh water. Angia, with whom the souls of the dead live till their time comes to be born again is never seen but you may hear him laughing in the depths of the woods among the rocks down in the lagoons and among the mangrove swamps hence we may fairly infer that the country assigned to a man of the cape york peninsula at the extraction of his tooth is one where his spirit tarried during the interval which elapsed since his last incarnation his totem which is determined at the same time may possibly be the animal plant or other natural object in which his spirit resided since its last embodiment in human form, or perhaps rather in which a part of his spirit may be supposed to lodge outside his body during life. The latter view is favoured by the belief of the tribe of the Painfather River, whose practice at childbirth so closely resembles that of the Cape York natives at puberty. For the Painfather people hold that during a man's life, a portion of his spirit lodges outside of his body in his afterbirth. However that may be, it seems probable that among the Cape York natives, the custom of knocking out the tooth is closely associated with a theory of reincarnation. Perhaps the same theory explains a privilege enjoyed by the Camilleroti tribe of New South Wales. They claim a superiority over the surrounding tribes, and enforce their claim by extracting from them the teeth knocked out at puberty. The extraction of this tribute might have passed for a mere assertion of suzerainty, were it not that the Camilleroti knocked out their own teeth also. Perhaps the extracted teeth were believed secured to their present possessors a magical control over their former owners, not only during life but after death, so that armed with them the Camillaroi could help or hinder the rebirth of their departed friends or enemies. Australian initiatory rites meant to secure rebirth. Thus, if I am right, the essential feature in all three great initiatory rites of the Australians is the removal of a vital part of the person which shall serve as a link between two successive incarnations by preparing for the novice a new body to as his spirit when its present tabernacle shall have been worn out. Certain funeral rites also intended to ensure reincarnation. Now, if there is any trouble in this suggestion, we should expect to find that measures to ensure reincarnation are also taken at death and burial. This seems in fact to be done. For in the first place, the practice of pouring the blood of kinsmen and kinswomen into the grave is obviously susceptible of this explanation, since in accordance with the Australian usages, which I have cited, the blood might well be thought to strengthen the feeble ghost 
for a new birth. Australian funeral ceremonies intended to ensure the reincarnation of the dead. The same may be said of the Australian custom of depositing hair with the dead, for it is a common notion that the hair is the seat of strength. Again, it has been a rule with some Australian tribes to bury their dead on the spot where they were born. This was very natural if they desired the dead man to be born again. Further, the common Australian practice of depositing the dead in trees may, in some cases at least, have been designed to facilitate rebirth, for trees are often the places in which the souls of the dead reside, and for which they come forth to be born again in human shape. Thus the Unmatjara and Katish tribes bury very aged women and decrepit old men in the ground, but the bodies of children, young women and men, in the prime of life, are laid on platforms among the boughs of trees. In regard to children, we are definitely told that this is done in the hope that before very long, its spirit may come back again into the body of a woman, in all probability that of its former mother. Further, the Arunta, who bury their dead, are careful to leave a low depression on one side of the mound, in order that the spirit may pass out and in, and this depression always faces towards the dead man's or woman's camping ground in the Alcaringa, or remote past, that is the spot which he or she inhabited in spirit form. Is not this done to let the spirit rid itself of its decaying tabernacle and repair to the place where in due time it will find a new and better body? In this connection, the final burial rites in the Binbinga, Aluna, and Marrow tribes are worthy of remark. Among these people, the bones the dead are, after a series of ceremonies, deposited in a hollow log, on which the dead man's totem is painted. This log is then placed, with the bones, in the boughs of a tree beside a pool, so that if possible it overhangs the water. For about three wet seasons, the father and son of the deceased, who placed the log there, are alone allowed to eat water lilies out of that pool, and no woman is permitted to go near the spot. There the bones of the dead man remain till the log rots and they fall into the water or are carried away by a flood. When the burial rites are all over, the spirit of the deceased returns to its mungai spot, that is, to the place where it dwells in the interval between two successive incarnations. Sooner or later it will be born again. These rites seem, therefore, clearly to be a preparation for the new rebirth. Belief in reincarnation and measures taken to secure it among other peoples. As the belief in reincarnation is shared by many peoples besides the Australians, it is natural to suppose that funeral rites intended to facilitate the rebirth of deceased may be found in other parts of the world. Elsewhere I have cited examples of these rites. Here I will add a few more. It is especially the bodies of dead infants which are the object of such ceremonies, for since their lives have been cut prematurely short, it seems reasonable to give their souls a chance of beginning again and lengthening out their existence on earth to its natural close. Reincarnation among the Bagishu of Mount Aegon But it is not always dead babies only whom the living seek thus to bring back to life. For example, we read that round about Mount Elgon in East Africa, the custom of throwing out the dead is universal among all the clans of Bagishu, except in the case of the youngest child or the old grandfather or grandmother, for whom, like the child, a prolonged life on earth is desired. When it is desired to perpetuate on the earth the life of some old man or woman, or that of some young baby, the corpse is buried inside the house or just under the eaves until another child is born to the nearest relation of the corpse. This child, male or female, 
text and name of the corpse and the peculiar family belief that the spirit of the dead has passed into this new child and lives again on earth the remains are then dug up and thrown out into the open reincarnation among the tribes of the lower congo similarly among the tribes of the lower congo a baby is always buried near the house of its mother never in the bush they think that if the child is not buried near its mother's house she will be unlucky and never have any more children it is believed that the only new thing about the child is its body the spirit is old and formerly belonged to some deceased person or it may have the spirit of some living person they have two reasons for believing this the child speaks early of strange things the mother has never taught it's so that they believe the old spirit is talking to the child again if the child is like its mother father or uncle they think it has the spirit of the person it resembles and that that person will soon die hence the parent will resent it if you say that the baby is like him or her thus it appears that the argument for the pre-existence of the human soul which plato and wordsworth drew from reminiscence is fully accepted by some negro tribes of west africa reincarnation in india in the Bilaspur district of India, a stillborn child, or one who has passed away before the Chutti, the sixth day, the day of purification, is not taken out of the house for burial, but is placed in an earthen vessel, a gutter, and is buried in the doorway or in the yard of the house. Some say that this is done in order that the mother may bear another child. It is said that among the Khons of India, on the day after a death, some boiled rice and a small fowl are taken to the place where the body is burned. There the fowl is split down the breast and placed on the spot, after which it is eaten and the soul that departed is invited to enter a newborn child. On the fifth day after the death, the Gons perform the ceremony of bringing back the soul. They go to the riverside and call aloud the name of the deceased. Then they enter the river, catch a fish or an insect, and take it at home place it among the sainted dead of the family, believing that the spirit of their lost one has thus been brought back to the house. Sometimes the fish or insect is eaten in order that the spirit which it contains may be born again as a child. Reincarnation among the Hurons When a baby died within a month or two of birth, the Hurons did not dispose of its little body, like those of grown people, by depositing it on a scaffold. They buried it beside the road in order, so they said, that the child might enter secretly into the womb of some woman passing by and be born again into the world reincarnation among the ancient greeks some of the ancient rules observed with regard to funerals in the greek island of Ceos have been ingeniously explained by mr f b jevons as designed to secure the rebirth of the departed in one of the women of the family the widespread custom of burying the dead in the house was perhaps instituted for the same purpose and the ancient greek practice of sacrificing to the dead man at the grave on his birthday may possibly have originated in the same train of thought for example sacrifices were annually offered on their birthdays to hippocrates by the koans to aratus by the sicyonians and to epicurus by his disciples rights to procure the rebirth of edible animals and plants now too we can fully understand the meaning of the bloody ritual in the ceremonies for the multiplication of the totem animals and plants we have seen that a strengthening and fertilizing virtue is attributed to human blood what more natural than it should be poured out by the men of the totem on the spot in which the disembodied spirit of the totem animals or plants are waiting for reincarnation clearly the rite seems intended to enable these spirits 
to take bodily shape and be born again in order that they may again serve as food if not to the men of the totem clan at least to all the other members of the tribe later on we shall find that the attempt to reincarnate the souls of dead animals in order that their bodies may be eaten over again is not peculiar to the australian savages but is practised with many curious rites by peoples in other parts of the world general theory of intertuma and initiated rites in australia to sum up briefly the general theory to which the foregoing facts have thus far led us i would say that just as the intertuama tribes of the australians are for the most part magical ceremonies intended to secure the re-embodiment of the spirits of edible animals and plants so their initiatory rites may perhaps be regarded as magical ceremonies designed mainly to ensure the reincarnation of human souls now the motive for procuring the rebirth of animals and plants is simply the desire to eat them cannibalism in australia may not this have been one of the motives for attempting to resuscitate the human dead it would seem so for all the tribes of the gulf of carpentaria who have been examined by spencer and gillen eat their dead and the ceremonies and traditions of the arunta indicate that their ancestors also ate the bodies of their fellow tribesmen in this respect the practice of the binbinga tribe is particularly instructive for among them the bodies of the dead are cut up and eaten not by men of the same tribal subclass as the deceased but by men belonging to the subclasses which compose the other intermarrying half of the tribe this is exactly analogous to the practice which at present prevails as to the eating of the totem animal or plant among all these central and northern tribes among them each clan that has an edible animal or plant for its totem is supposed to provide the animal or plant for all the other clans to eat and similarly among the bimbinka the men of any particular subclass do actually provide their own bodies for the members of the other intermarrying half of their tribe to devour and just as in the far past the members of a totem clan appear to have subsisted regularly although not exclusively and perhaps not even mainly on their totem animal or plant so at a remote time they seem regularly to have eaten each other thus the wild dog clan of the aranta has many traditions that their ancestors killed and ate wild dog men and women such traditions probably preserve a true reminiscence of a state of things still more savage than the present practice of the binbinga at that more or less remote time if we may trust the scattered hints of custom and legend which are the only evidence we have to go upon the men and women of a totem clan in defiance of their customs at a later age regularly cohabitate with each other ate their totems and devoured each other's dead bodies in such a state of things there was no sharp line of distinction drawn either in theory or in practice between a man and his totem and this confusion is again confirmed by the legends from which it is often difficult to make out whether the totemic ancestor spoken of is a man or an animal and if measures were taken to resuscitate both it may well have been primarily in order that both might be eaten again australian totemism not a religion the system was thoroughly practised in its aim only the means it took to compass its ends were mistaken it was in no sense a religion unless we are prepared to bestow the name of religion on the business of the grazier at the market gardener for these savages certainly bred animals and plants and perhaps bred men for much the same reasons that a grazier and a market gardener breed cattle and vegetables but whereas the methods of the grazier and market gardener rest upon the laws of nature and therefore do really produce the effects they aim at the methods of these savages are based on a mistaken conception of natural law 
and therefore totally fail to bring about the intended result only they do not perceive their failure kindly nature if we may personify here for a moment draws a veil before their eyes and herself works behind the veil whose wonders of reproduction which the poor savage vainly fancies that he has wrought by his magical ceremonies and incantations present function of totemism in central australia in short totemism as it exists at present among these tribes appears to be mainly a crude almost childlike attempt to satisfy the primary wants of man especially under the hard conditions to which he is subject to the deserts of central australia by magically creating everything that a savage stands in need of and food first of all but to say so is not to affirm that this has been the purpose and the only purpose of australian totemism from the beginning that beginning lies far behind us in the past and is therefore necessarily much more obscure and uncertain than the function of totemism as a fully developed system to which alone the preceding remarks are applicable our examination of the magical rites performed by the australians for the maintenance of the food supply has led us into this digression it is time to pass to ceremonies practised for the same purpose and on the same principles by our peoples in other parts of the world end of section four